0: Hey, BARD listeners. If you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help.
1: This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year.
0: Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding.
1: If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again, including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy, it only takes 30 seconds, and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to bklynlibrary.org slash standup, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queens Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. Thank you so much for your support. Virginia here to recommend another podcast episode about book bans. This one comes to us from the Pulso podcast, which is a fantastic show that tells stories from the Latinx community. Their most recent episode is called When Latinos Fought the Book Ban, and it's about a racist law that banned a popular Mexican-American studies program back in 2010. Administrators came into the schools and pulled beloved books written by Latino authors off classroom shelves but they didn't expect just how far the Latino community would go to defend the right to learn about their history. From students chaining themselves to desks, to secret underground libraries, and even banned book smugglers, this is a really important and moving story. You can find the Pulso podcast on your podcast app of choice. This particular episode is number 44. It's called When Latinos Fought the Book Ban. Hey Borrowed Listeners, just a heads up that the interview you're about to hear mentions violence against queer people. It's a brief mention right at the beginning, so if that's not something you want to hear about right now, feel free to skip ahead and come back to it when you're ready.
2: Back in 2017, there was a young man by the name of Giovanni Melton. his he was killed by his father and one of the police reports that came out it stated uh that his father said i would rather have a dead son than a gay son um in reading that it just like affected me in such a major way
0: this is george m johnson writer activist and author of the young adult memoir all boys aren't blue
1: all boys aren't blue is johnson's first book published in 2020 When we talked to George, they brought up the motivation to write their memoir, starting with the violence against Black queer people like Giovanni Melton.
2: I wrote multiple articles about that situation, but it just didn't feel like it was enough. And that really became the catalyst for me to put together the book All Boys Aren't Blue to really tell the totality of the experience of growing up being Black and queer and being on a journey uh, trying to figure out your identity in America.
0: All Boys Aren't Blue has been frequently banned and challenged over the past three years. It was number two in 2022, right next to Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye.
1: Morrison came up a lot in our interview. She's a big inspiration for George, but they didn't read Morrison until they were in their 20s, in large part because Morrison's books have been challenged and banned pretty much since their publication decades ago.
2: Toni Morrison is one of the greatest writers Period of all times. But unfortunately for us, uh, we have to find her. Like it doesn't, she doesn't find us because of how they block her from being in school. So we have to find her. Um, So it wasn't until I was an adult that I actually was able to start reading her and getting into her and really, really understanding what real writing was about um, and what culture was about and what Black writing was about and the importance of it she still guides the way I write and many, many things about, like, what I want to write about.
0: We'll talk a whole lot more about Toni Morrison in our next episode, but today we wanted to bring you the rest of our conversation with George M. Johnson. We covered a lot—their activism, their family, and their motivation to keep writing. I'm Adwa Aduse.
1: And I'm Virginia Marshall. You're listening to Borrowed and Banned, a podcast series about America's ideological war with its bookshelves. One of the things I liked most or was really struck by in reading your book was um, the amount of love there is in in between characters, but especially, you know, your, your family, the, the narrator's family's support that they give to their, um, their black queer child. Um, can you talk about why that was important to include what you were doing with that?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, we can look at what just happened recently with O'Shea Sibley. We're talking about somebody who was literally killed because he was voguing at a gas station when, I write this book and I wrote this story, I think people entered into it like, we're going to assume you know the worst, like George's family was terrible and they probably wanted to beat him and threw him out and all these things. And it's like, no, that's that's not my story. I don't know whose story it is, but that wasn't my story. Um, and I thought it was important because people will say like Black communities are more homophobic than other communities. And it's like, every community deals with homophobia, like every single one. We just get painted the welfare queen, the homophobe. Like we get painted in the worst light. And so I felt it was important for me to be like, you know what, let me tell the truth about how my community operates. Like, yeah, we got homophobia, but we also got love too. And we got this and we got that. And let me tell the real, real truth about that. And so it was important for me to use my family as that vessel because I want more families to start to realize that you don't have to make queer children disposable. Like you can love on queer children and support queer children. And I was not made disposable and I became a very, very powerful, great person in this world. And I want more people who are queer to be great and powerful people in this world. But that starts with having somewhere that you can call home. And I always, even to this day, have somewhere that I can call home.
0: I mean, there is definitely a tension between letting your work speak for itself and then also having to stand up to defend your words. But as a writer, how have you navigated that, that tension?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's tough. Um, Just like you said, like, you know, you let the work speak for itself, but then also like you have a real world aspect to it as well. You know, going out, I get the real in my face aspect of what my words mean to other people and I think for me, it's, like, the understanding that it's just, you know, it's not just words on a page. Like, the words are healing people. The words are saving people. The words are encouraging people. It makes it hard at times, you know, because it's, like, now when I go out, especially in, like, queer spaces, like, people recognize my face or people are quick to, like, want to talk about the book or talk about, like, what I've done or how I've helped them or how I've saved them and all of those things. Um, and that's great. But it's also a lot (laughs) at times, but I would never trade it in for anything in the world. You know, I understand what my purpose is and I understand why I wrote the book and why I continue to write books. And it's just something that you just kind of have to learn to get used to. I would say addressing the censorship has been an opportunity in itself. I care about protecting education in this country, but I really don't care about these people who want to ban books. Like, I, I could care less about them. My job is not to like convince them. My job is to continue to put this work out in the world and do what I have to do. Like Tony Morrison said, racism is a distraction because there will always be one more thing. So it's like, even if I corrected and sanitized All Boys on Blue, they would find another section of the book to try and ban it. The only thing I need to do is shut these people down and pay these people no mind and continue doing the work that I'm doing. And so... That was the conscious decision that I made when I decided to fight the book bans and do everything that I'm doing, because it's just like these people are trying to censor materials that I know have helped save lives. Um, And they claim it's in the name or the vein of wanting to, quote unquote, protect children. But it's like, which children are you protecting? And I mean, we have literally seen where you have congressmen and state legislature who have queer children still making anti-LGBTQ Bills, so it's like I'm not gonna go back and forth with these people. I'm gonna just keep fighting to make sure that I ensure that the the things and the materials that I want to be in the world stay in the world.
1: Um, I did want to ask you about one more uh, book challenge. Uh, this was in Glen Ridge, New Jersey, and I I read that your mom showed up to support your book and others, and that you know she read some of your statements defending all boys aren't blue and others mm-hmm. can i just ask you what was that like you know to have a challenge come up in your state to have your mom show up i mean mm-hmm. that that just strikes me as something that's like close to home
2: yeah it was really interesting um i got asked if i was gonna be in the area and i had to be in texas and i was like well i'm not gonna be in the area i was like but my mama and my aunts like live like 20 minutes from there like they'll come and the group that was fighting against the band was like wait really i was like yeah my mom and them will come, so I just said my mother. because we have a group chat? We talk every day, so I sent them a group text and was like, "Hey y'all, like they're trying to ban the, the book in Glen Ridge. Can y'all go? I'm gonna write a letter. Can y'all go speak on my behalf?" And they were like, "Of course we will." Um, we didn't realize though that the Glen Ridge event was going to be like 500, 600 people and police, and like we we just thought it was gonna be a small school board meeting. So we didn't know it was gonna have like all this press and all of those things. So that kind of was surprising to all of us. But at the same time, you know, that's just what my family does. Like we're a family, we stick together. So what was surprising for, you know, many others was never going to be surprising for me. Like my family comes to everything that I do. And so um, they've always supported me. I wanted people to also see like what solidarity of black family looks like. And I remember putting it online and seeing a lot of the comments and the quote tweets and all of the things. And people were just like, wow, like this is what it looks like to support a queer child. This is what it looks like. Like resoundingly, people were like, damn, I wish my mother supported me like this. Or like, we need more mothers to support like this. We need more aunties to support like this. And so it was a beautiful moment because it kind of like opened up community into a space where it's like, yeah, we need more of this.
0: What would you say to a young person who's having trouble finding your book or ones like it?
2: It's funny because uh there's <laughs> there's a piracy site that has my full book uploaded and I think a lot of people thought I was gonna tell everybody like to shut shut it down. And I was like, No, like Hey, y'all, I shared the link and everybody was like, whoa, like, listen, the kids need this book. I don't care how they get it. I ain't worried about losing some book sales because the kids are looking at my book on a pirated site. Like if they need the materials, get the materials. But also, you know, what I would tell them is like there are now programs like the Brooklyn Public Library has one. But like there are several programs now in the country where like they have like the ebook program where, you know, people can can get banned books. But I always tell, especially when I'm talking to youth, I'm like, you know, if if they take the book off the shelf, like the eBooks are less expensive, the audio book. Um, so it's really about just, you know, taking your time, seeing which books reflect you and the story that you need to hear. And then just like really utilizing your resources to to get access to those books when they've been taken from your school libraries buy the banned books, read the banned books, and then share your testimonial about the banned books. Because what has happened in this particular culture and climate is that it's a lot of disinformation, misinformation going out. And so we need more people to actually read the books to say, hey, they're saying this book is pornography, but this is actually what I got from the book. The more people that start to do that, the harder their argument becomes. Someone from the Moms for Liberty they were arguing like, your book is porn. And I'm like, it's not porn. And then they posted the pages of the book that they felt were too erotic or whatever. And literally people were quoting like, well, if your ultimate goal was for kids not to read this, you just put this on the internet where kids could read it. And she had no response, right? So it's like, these people are just literally playing off of a playbook that they don't even understand. So the main thing we have to do is have a playbook ourselves that keep these books on the shelf and that pushes back against this narrative that they're trying to paint us into. Um, Realistically, the country is becoming more diverse. It's becoming less white. That's really what the T is. And they are literally grasping to keep the stranglehold on this country uh, and keep the stranglehold on nationalism and white supremacy. And realistically, we just have to continue to fight against it and make it clear that everybody's story deserves to be told. Everybody should learn about the history of this country. Advocating and being vocal and showing up to local meetings uh, helps to to do that.
1: Is there a teen or a young person who connected to your book, maybe reached out to you? Is there like a young person's story, I guess, in relation to your book that you would want to share?
2: During the pandemic, I did a virtual school visit to school in Boston I believe but it was one student in particular they got to meet me and ask me questions and I got to tell them about like the things I thought about when I was struggling through my own identity and how I got to where I am today and all those things like it gave them the strength to be like you know what if George can be who they are I can be who I am and they changed their name they started transitioning um And the teacher literally called me and was like, no. And like when they changed their name, all the students, you know, started clapping and were supportive. And it was a beautiful moment for this person. And it all happened simply because I chose to show up. Then I also did a book talk with 33 people who are over the age of 60 who were queer. They were still saying this is the first time I ever felt seen in a book. And... For me, that was a lot to take in. Like I'm talking to people in their 60s and 70s, and they're like, "This is the first time I've ever felt seen in a book." I'm just like, "Wow, I know what that felt like because I went through my middle school years and elementary years and high school years not feeling seen in anything that I read." But it's like to be in your 60s or 70s and finally found a book that told your story, like. It's a bittersweet moment. So it's again, I'm glad it's in the world. I think that's the biggest thing like I took away from it was like, I'm just glad that I was able to put this in the world because that book is healing a lot of the inner child that never got to feel seen or never got to feel heard or never got the story told.
1: Wow. I know. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that one. I feel like I, I haven't yet heard that. And and it just, it just reminds me that that's so true that we're only now seeing so many books that represent these stories.
0: Right. But also just that inner child bit, you know, like we're obviously we're focusing on children a lot and in the series, but in general with book bands, but like we were all children.
1: Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a good rest of your day.
2: Okay. Sounds good. Thank y'all so much.
1: Thank you.
0: Bard and Band is a production of Brooklyn Public Library and receives support from the Metropolitan New York Library Council's Equity in Action Grant. This episode was written by Virginia Marshall and hosted by me and Virginia.
1: Our borrowed team includes Ali Post, Fritzy Bodenheimer, Robin Lester-Kenton, and Damaris Olivo. Ashley Gill and Jennifer Profit run our social media. Lauren Rockford and Erica Moroz help with the emails. John Snowden designed our logo. The books and band team at BPL includes Summer Boimier, Jackson Gomes, Nick Higgins, Lee Hurwitz, Karen Keyes, and Amy Michael.